This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, everyone, welcome back to uh, Torah's Essentials course here in the old city of Yerushalayim for our next installment. Uh, today, we're, we're going to talk about is true spirituality. And this is a very, uh, this is a very uh, rough topic on the Jewish world today because the, the Jewish world today is... is is not very spiritual, and it's uh, a lot of people have been left disappointed in their in their Jewishness and uh, as far as the spiritual part. Ladies, you're missing the whole introduction. You missed the whole introduction. I'll go back. It's an uncomfortable topic. Uh, the Jewish approach to spirituality because it's um, it's often not experienced as spirituality. It's either intellectual or it's habitual or it's some you're doing some kind of ritual uh, or you have to show up in some synagogue or you're uh, or you're learning about things but spirituality is something that engenders a, a catharsis, something that's happening inside your whole core. It's something that's that's uh, something that it, it, it transforms you. Uh, let's say, for example, um, if any of you uh, were away from close friends or family for a few months, involved in spirituality, and you came back, You would see acquaintances, and they would say, "There's something about you has changed. Mm-hmm. Something's changed about you." That's how you know you did. You were involved in spirituality. The way you know you were involved in spirituality is is you get feedback from people that they couldn't put their finger on it necessarily what it is that's changed, but they would get a sense that something about you is different. And if you think about your own desire for spirituality, you'll realize that that's exactly what you want. And you, and you actually want something that is cathartic. You want something that fundamentally shifts you in your being. That's what you're after. And meanwhile, we're all you know, scared of that. I'm sure you'd be scared to have that, yet that's what you seek. So it's kind of weird. we got this double-edged sword. we got this two-sided thing where on the one hand, we're, we only would be interested in spirituality that changes us. On the other hand, we're scared to change. So... So it's kind of interesting that way. Um, it takes it takes a lot of courage. Spirituality takes a lot of courage. You have to be willing to uh, to go there. You got to be willing to let go of uh, mostly who you are, um, which is the scariest thing of all, is letting go of who you are. I mean, what is the main thing in the way of your spirituality? Your main way of, that's in way of the spirituality is, is your self-image. If you're willing to let go of your self-image totally, maybe you can have some access to spirituality. But until you're willing to let go of your self-image, so then you're, you're... You'll always be trying to fit everything into you as opposed to you into it. I say that again. You'll always be trying to fit everything into your per, your already self-image way of looking at things, the way you perceive the world, and you'll um, 
but rather you'll you'll try to fit. I mean, you're going to try to fit spirituality into you as opposed to you into it. But if you're trying to fit spirituality into you, you'll never get there because the whole point is I'm fitting me into it. And it, spirituality means that I'm reaching into something bigger, something ecstatic, something that's large, something's larger than life, and and it's way bigger than me, and it's a million times bigger than my self-image, and certainly bigger than you know all that ego stuff. So, so the first step in spirituality is, is uh, ego nullification. You have to nullify your self-image. You've got to get rid of the darn thing. You can imagine, anyone in this room ready to get rid of her self-image, his self-image? <laughs> so you got the biggest opportunity to have spirituality, and the rest of us are blocked. So... So, but do you, oh, you're, you're raising your hand? No, I was thinking, but self-image is based, you're actually answering my question, and I'm going to have whoever I need to see this class. You, but the whole point of who you are, or your identity, is just based on society, basically. So it's really not who you are. I understand, but people, um, people are very vulnerable to being known. Whereas, see, as long as your self-image, like, like you have a self-image, Right? You have a self-image? You have a self-image? Everyone has an image of themselves? I'm sorry. So, that self-image of you is something you cleave on to. You hold on to it very strongly. And, but there's nothing true about it. There's nothing true. It's so random. I mean, think about it. If you were born literally 100 feet over to some other crazy family, like a block down the street, and that's where you're born, you have a totally different self-image. If things, if circumstances that were formative in your life had been different, meaning even in your home, but different circumstances, had it been another teacher in that grade, so you didn't get embarrassed in front of everybody, that also would have had a major impact on yourself. And you, the point is, you want to get, you need you all of you in this room, and myself at all times, you all of us, we all need to realize before we get anywhere how random our self-image is, how, how random it is, the way we see ourselves. It is totally random. Yet there's still the self. You still have the self. The image is random. The self isn't random. The self is eternal. The self is the soul. The self is yourself. That's forever. The image, the self-image, which is another way of putting yourself or your soul into handcuffs, the image is the handcuffs of the self. The image is, what's, is what you hold on to, to protect yourself. But it's meanwhile, you're cleaving on to, you're grabbing on to, grasping, clasping, clawing at, at nothing, because it's, it's, there's nothing real about it. There's nothing true about it. And so, for us to get, any, as I'm saying before, to, for us to get any access into spirituality, we have to let go of all of our self-image into it. Now, are we ever going to get rid of all of our self-image? It's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, layer upon layer. Your whole life, you'll be getting rid of it. But you've got to start somewhere, and you know where you start? Desire to get rid of it. Desire to let it go. Yeah? What are you referring to by self-image? Thanks for asking that question. So the word image is short for what? What's image short for? Imagine. It's the imaginary self. It's our imaginary self that we have been perpetuating since we're children. 
Now, what's another word for image? Image, like Google Images, what's the word image? Picture. It's a picture. So now put it together with the word self, a self-picture. Oh yeah, when did you take the snapshot? When did you get your picture? When did you pose? So chances are, the majority of us posed, or all of us really posed for the picture at our worst moments. Can you imagine having like a bad hair day to find out that there's a photo shoot at school for your class, you know, and you're having a bad hair day? Just like, what? It's going to be both the class and the portraits. And you have no access to anything, you know, to fix that up. So imagine your picture taken on the worst day possible. But isn't that when your picture was taken? Isn't it, wasn't it our most embarrassing moments that have locked in who we think we are? Wasn't it our most painful moments that locked in who we thought we were? Wasn't it our loneliest moments, our saddest moments, our scaredest moments that had the biggest traumatic impact that therefore locked in who we are? Meaning when days were going good, we weren't getting much self-image out of that. Days, a smooth day didn't really stamp much onto us. It was a smooth day. It was a great day. And kids, parents, we came home, our parents said, how was school? We were like, good. And then we ate dinner or whatever and played and went to bed. It was the more traumatic moments that did the real stamping into our image. Now, as, as soon as that was stamped into us, we didn't tell anybody. I mean, show me a kid, I mean, besides my own. But show me a kid. And my own also wouldn't do it, except I can see in their eyes that something happened. And I will slowly work it out of them to just share, you know, the embarrassing moment that happened in school that day or whatever happened, get them to share it so that we can deal with it instead of it becoming their self-image. And But what happened to us is we didn't share it. We didn't share it. I wasn't your father growing up taking care of you like that. You came in silent, zipped, and you had suddenly these thoughts about yourself, and you didn't share it with anybody. You know today, if something happened to you today that was uncomfortable, something happened to you today that hurt you, you know, you the next time you saw a good friend, what would you do? You, you'd say it. Get it out. The beauty of us being expressors with our mouths is that we can express pain and release it into the wind. There's something about expressing pain and expressing negative thoughts that when we express them, they leave us alone. But when we were little, we didn't express to anybody. Maybe we didn't want to disappoint our parents. I don't know what was going on with us. But we didn't say anything. My mo most difficult moments of my childhood were never shared when I was a kid. I never shared them. I held them in. And you find that to be true with most people. Very few people ever shared the most painful moments. And I think we were embarrassed, maybe. We didn't want anyone to know what we suddenly had happened and, and now, and what it means to us. I think that's the harder part, is what it meant about us that's now been stamped in there as our self-image is so rough that for sure we don't want anyone to know. Now, after that self-image locked in, what we did was we created a cover-up self-image. This, this is the second part of the answer. Answer one was difficult stuff stamps us literally stamps us, uh, the image. And the, but then what we do is we create a separate self-image as a protection that no one should ever, ever know about 
the inner self-image. So there's an inner self-image and an outer self-image. The inner self-image is those painful moments that are our deepest secret. And then the outer self-image is the is the personality we've created to protect ourselves from that. <laughs> but then who are what's your now it's really gotten bad because what's your self-image? Your self-image is a total charade. It's a complete charade protecting you from something that had nothing to do with you in the first place. <laughs> meaning, meaning the fact that I got embarrassed in class or on the playground or, or whatever got spanked or whatever and made image about me. Is that true that now I'm a loser? Not at all. So, so here I'm, now I've developed a whole personality around something that wasn't even true. If ki- someone said I was ugly as a kid or fat when I was a kid, and that became my self-image. It wasn't true. It wasn't true. And or if someone said I was dumb, you know, an older brother says I'm dumb, and that becomes my son. That's not true. I've never met a dumb person in my life. Was it the I just grab this. Scene. Was there someone such a clever as that? Clever is great, but it's usually too late. Meaning, how many of us have been told we were smart and we were just like, thank you. It's not, it's not going to help. It's not going to help. So clever would be wonderful, but, but it's, uh, it's got to be, uh, you know, it's got to be dealt with appropriately. Putting, you know, trying to paint your car over mud, you know, let's say your car got really muddy, so you decide to pour, paint, paint it. Just gonna fall off. The uh, you got a rough, you got a the same anything. A rusty gar, you know, railing needs sanding before you. You got to get it back down to the metal to paint it in any way that will last. So being told you're clever isn't so helpful. And not to mention all the successful personality moves we've made. I mean, I made some seriously successful personality moves from my painful, my inner self-image. I made a lot of outer self-image moves. Extremely successful. Extremely successful. But did they ever work? What do you think? You think it ever worked? Think it ever made me feel okay? Do you think it was ever enough? Do you think I ever got to a point where all my really powerful and positive and successful self-image moves I made, do you think I ever got to the point where I said, okay, done. Now I know I'm fine and good and, and worthy. You think that I got to that point? No way. It's never enough. Why you, is it you just got to keep going and keep going. Because it's not none of its none of the outer self-image is true. It's always a it's always a band-aid for the inner one. So it's never enough because the inner one's gonna punch you in the nose as soon as this one's this one's not there, you're gonna get hit. Oh. It's waiting for you. Okay, are we clear so far? What, what is the self-image mean? Don't ask that question right now, please. Sorry. She asked it at the exact time. No, you say what's the self-image I, move? Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you said mean. You said move? Yeah, yeah, you said supposed Yeah, yeah. My bad. Yeah, you should. <laughs> no, you're great. You're great. You had a good question. <laughs> she had just said, what does self-image mean? And then I spent the last 10 minutes. <laughs> and then I went to you and you're like, what does self-image mean? I'm like, don't ask that. So, uh, so the move is, what I was saying was, uh, the first move happens default when we're little. Just traumatic moments. The second one's a move we make. We make a move to cover it up. One of those moves, some of those moves are fight, 
Meaning I'm going to be the guy, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to dominate in some way. And some of those moves are, some of those moves are flight, where I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to try anymore, or I'm going to drop out of school, or I'm going to, or I'm going to, I'm not going to parties anymore, or I'm going to, I'm going to get sick before the wedding, you know, so I don't have to show up there or something. That's flight. So we, we have fight personality moves, uh, self-image moves, and we have fight self-image moves. And we often use them interchangeably, meaning when I can dominate, I'll fight. And if I can't dominate in this situation, I'll fly. But we've developed this whole persona. Now, this class, believe it or not, has nothing to do with self-image. <laughs> this class is about spirituality. Well, that's what I was saying, is if you want to get to something bigger than you, which is what spirituality is, you've got to let go of the you. And the you isn't worth holding on to. So the last 15 minutes was just convincing you that the you that you've been so holding on to, to the point where he's the only one who raises his hand, that he's willing to get rid of his self-image. Also, I think I did it already. <laughs> You've got other levels. Yeah. We're never done. That's true. There's other levels, believe me. Uh, I, I got my own going on <laughs> still, too. So it's an endless work. You'll never be finished with getting rid of You have levels of self-image that don't only meet later in life based on circumstances that could only have introduced you to those levels based on, you know, stuff that'll come to you when you're in your 50s. And later, 60s, 70s. Even the fear of death that hits people usually in their 70s, 80s, that's, uh, or 60s, 70s, 80s, that fear of death is all self-image related. You gotta go into that part. Huh. See what's going on with you there. But one sec, one sec. This class is not about self-image. This class is about class is about spirituality and to get to spirituality you have to let go of something that's way bigger than you and if you're not willing to let go of you to get there so then so then you'll never get there and so you'll just be a constant complainer for the rest of your life that Judaism didn't provide spirituality <laughs> which is funny and not that funny but uh, meaning it's funny in that we're the ones <laughs> we're the problem <laughs> Judaism's not the problem now again they're not again the first time. Judaism hasn't exactly shown us. No, the second time. Judaism hasn't exactly shown us very intense spirituality. I mean, rarely we ever meet a rabbi who knows anything about spirituality, sadly. You know, meaning they'll know a ton about God's will, but n almost nothing about God. And, uh, you know, meaning they know everything about how to keep Shabbat, because it's God's will. They'll know a ton about Shema and times of prayer and. Kashrut and you know you name it all the details of God's will God's will the rabbis are excellent at it. but the actual intimate relationship with God and the whole spiritual world which is super funky Kabbalistic expialidocious crazy detailed stuff over there you know which again I'm not expecting anyone to study that stuff but no one knows this stuff we are living in a, the end of days you know, and this is why Jews are such easy fodder for uh, other spiritualities. You know, Jews fall into Christianity. Christianity gives you a, you can keep your ego and just go for this immediacy of the of the experiential. You know, they're right as we speak. I'm sure they're over at the like uh, what is that? One of their places out there, in Mount Zion, where it's called like uh, the Last Supper House or something. I forget what it's called. 
you know, they, they, give, they bring the whole group in there and everyone's just got their arms up and they're all just like screaming and like they're creating this ecstatic thing. And everyone leaves there just like, wow, you know, like that was so spiritual and stuff. Meanwhile, you're going to another class and another class. More information, more information. <laughs> but Judaism offers, so Judaism itself in our generation has not exactly met the demands but that wasn't our focus of this class. Our focus in this class, we're the problem. is because we are, our own self-image is in the way of bigger. Because we need to put us into it, not it into us. If you're trying to get Judaism into you, forget about it. You'll, it'll never go in. It'll never go in. That's like, it's like trying to put a swimming pool. Let's say you had to siphon out a swimming pool, you know, because you want to repair the bottom of the swimming pool. It'd be like trying to siphon out a swimming pool into a cup. You know, it's not, it'll go in, but it's going to be going out. You know, they, that's Judaism trying to put it into you. How do you eradicate self-image while still maintaining self-worth? Self-worth only begins when you get rid of the self-image. The self-image is your whole issue with self-worth. The reason you don't have self-worth is the inner self-image. The outer self-image is your, is your, the outer self-image is your, your um, charade, your act, your play, you know, like you're in a narrative, you're, in, you're inside this play. By the way, I just want to mention one more thing that I think this will completely convince at least the girls in the room to get rid of their self-image. It should help with the boys too, but at least the girls. Is because uh, I know it sounds like self-image is the, what's in the way of our relationship with spirituality. I, I get that, that we spoke about. But guess what else it's in the way of? It's in the way of true connection, true intimacy with people, spouse, children. You're going to have kids. Your kids aren't always going to fit in perfectly with your self-image and the image you've created for the neighbors and the school and the shuls and the, you know. Your kids are going to be your kids. And they're going to be doing what kids do. <laughs> Which is, you know, pretty random in the teenage years. And, and for your real connection with your kids, you're going to have to choose between self-image and spirituality also. And meaning the, the self-image being the false sense of self with the true sense of self, which I'll talk about in a minute. Husbands and wives, for them to have real connection, requires the release of the self-image. Every time I counsel a couple, it's always self-image is the issue. It's always self-image that's between them. Self-image is between you and your mother. <coughs> Think about it. Think what's between you and your mother? Self-image. And men, it's between you and your father. Your self-image is exactly what's, what's blocking the connection. Self-image between you and your siblings. Uh, anyone here has rabbis, like a personal rabbi? Or a Gomorrah rabbi? It's between you and your rabbi. When you let go of it, what you get is connection. I don't know if any of you noticed on on, uh, on Purim, did you notice uh, the amount of hugging going on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Notice the amount of Holy hugging? Cow. Have you ever hugged that many people? No. Yeah. In one 24-hour period? In 24-hour period? It's the, it's, you can call it Purim, or you can call it Hugging day. I've never yeah. seen that much hugging going on. There was a whole lot of hugging going on. 
and random people. I saw people on the streets didn't know each other hugging. I saw, I saw secular people hugging. I saw Haredi people hugging. I saw Haredi rarely ever hug except I'm. I'm not sure they hug their own spouses sometimes, but they but they seem to hug random people on porn. I saw secular and Haredi people hugging. There, there was, it was a hug fest, meaning there was an intimacy that doesn't normally exist. That was going on. Well, what's going on on Purim? Two major things are going on. One is costumes. What's a costume? You're wearing this costume, and what do you ultimate? What's your statement when you're wearing a costume? Listen carefully. This is very deep. It's this isn't really me. This is a costume. Think about it. When you're wearing a costume, what are you saying? You're saying this isn't me. This is a costume. And suddenly you're hugging people. What? When you make this mental shift, this mental move of this isn't me, this is a costume, suddenly there's an intimacy that takes place. Because what you got in touch with now is, well, if this isn't me, so what is me? Well, you probably didn't think that much about it, but, but therefore what is me is you. And since me and you are both have this inner world, well, those can connect. The inner me, the soul me, the spirit me. My spirit can connect with your spirit. And so there was a hug. Soon as the costume's off, you know, all of us got dressed in what we consider comfortable today, but completely linked to some kind of image. So now that I'm in my, now that I'm wearing this, I'm not in a costume anymore. This is me. And now the hugging stops. Because now I got locked into, I think my costume's not a costume. But my costume is a costume. Meaning the self-image is always my costume. And there's a me inside the self-image that's, that's so connective, so totally connective. Just all it does is connect. Now, do you think I hug more people on Purim than I do on a normal day? No. I didn't hug more people. I was very happy to have the depth of the hugs because normally I'm hugging that deep and, and the other person's going, oh, well, I guess we're going to be hugging a little longer than I would normally hug somebody. Because <laughs> uh, whenever I hug somebody, it's usually a little longer. And... Uh, well, I have a rule is the other person lets go first, for sure, at least with children. Uh, by the way, just something to know when you have kids is that you let go last. Don't teach your kids disengagement. When you're hugging your children, you let go last. It can, some of those kids, will, you'll be shocked. I've had kids hug me two, three, four, five minutes, ten minutes straight. Shocked. Not even that young kids. But they're just still going. So if they're going, I'm not, gonna, I'm not teaching my kid how to disengage from intimacy. If it's a hug time, I'm staying in the hug. And uh, anyway, the other thing is the alcohol. Is there was, and there was, when you drink alcohol, obviously little is better than a lot, but whenever you drink alcohol, what it does is it boggles the uh, mind a little bit. You're a little bit boggled. And immediately the self-image is no longer so important. That's why you'll notice they call it in the, Secular people at dance parties and stuff call it liquid, or at bars or whatever, they call it liquid courage. Because they think if they drink a little, they got the courage now to... No, they call it liquid courage. It's good. Because if they drink a little, now they can ask a girl to dance or something, right? Now, let me explain why it's deep and special. Is It's not actually liquid courage. It's liquid removal of self-image. What's this issue? If you asked her to dance, she said no. She just cracked his self-image in half. But when he's had a little drink, 
his self-image is no longer so so uh, concrete. And now if she says no, it's a big deal. Like, what, what happened? Nothing. She said, no, I got to know. You know, maybe he's in a no contest tonight. He's got to get five no's by the end of the night. You know, he, him and his friend went in a no contest, and he's winning because he's, he's got his first no. So you understand there's, the self-image isn't on the line with a little alcohol. Comes poor, and we got costumes, and we're making that move that this ain't me. There's a me inside here that's endlessly deeper, and the alcohol. And then the hugging comes, and then everyone's connected. Yeah? Wait, are you kidding? Been waiting for somebody. Is, is, is a white shirt and a black costume also a self-image? Well, it certainly could be. And, I, and what happens at Asia Tour, once in a while we get a student here, puts it on, and you know why, you know why, and we stop him. We'll actually prevent it. And we're like, you can't tell me what to wear. And we're like, so go study somewhere else. Don't. Don't go there. Don't go there. We stop them. There's other yeshivas, sadly, that, that actually uh, promote it. You understand? They encourage, get with the program. You know? And Asia Torah, whoa. You try to put something on, like one of these types of outfits, before you're ready, you get, you get slammed. You get slammed, and then they, you'll get some major cold shower from some rabbi. <laughs> about getting real because we got our finger on the pulse of these guys and we've been doing this for decades and when a guy's ready he's ready to to identify externally but only when he realizes it's a custom when you realize it's a custom you can wear it until you realize it's a custom it's, it's not appropriate but you can wear any costume it doesn't have to be white and black for sure for sure but as a station identification for example uh Uh, let's say, for example, someone gets married and he wants to raise children that that clearly understand that they're B'nai Torah, they're children of, you know, they're a Torah family. So he may choose this outfit because it's for children who don't understand subtleties. It's a very clear statement that, you know, we're part of this community of Torah study people. We're part of the Torah community. So it's good. it might be good for kids. Um, some people sadly have the practical issue of getting their kids into school. I know people put it on just when their kids are old enough for school. And they're going to interview at a school and suddenly they go buy a white white shirt. You know, a black pants suit. Yeah. But you heard me say sadly. Sadly. Please God Mashiach's coming soon and we will not have such things. Mm-hmm. Very colorful stuff. Yeah. Well, what is if your self image is not worth getting rid of? We were not discussing any positives. Oh, you mean the, the oh, you're saying the outer one? Oh, the outer one, the outer one, the outer positive self-image is that's yours. You can enjoy it, but the but you have to get to a point. What's your name? Rachelia, you have to get to a point where you don't need it anymore. Once you don't need it, it's yours to use. Then you're partic- Then you're extra good. If you're inner, all of us have very positive self-image inner from all the good stuff and all the support and all the encouragement and all the growth we had as kids from our good upbringing. Um, we're only really discussing the, uh, the shocker, traumatic moments um, that we created a whole cover-up, a whole costume to, to mask. Those are the ones we've got to get rid of. The positive ones are great. 
Like, for example, if you were raised and told that God loves you, meaning you're loved by the creator of the universe, like, you're already done, basically. Like, people love me or don't love me, I don't care. As long as God loves me, I'm all set. So if you were raised feeling that way, you're so ahead of the game. Okay. Um, so we're on we're on a journey. I started today's journey with um, we still have time to do some of the spirituality stuff, but the, on the we're on a journey, and our journey started with self-image um, that we have to get rid of it in order to have the spiritual journey. So let's start a bit on the spiritual journey. Have I convinced anyone yet? that they'd be willing to let go of their self-image for spirituality? Can I get a showing of hands of people willing to let go of that? Can I also? I don't understand the difference. <laughs> Good, I've got a lot more hands up. Yeah. What, how do you differentiate between your self-image and like your personality? So like what makes you... Yeah, so I wasn't distinguishing them. That is your personality. But, the, but you have a natural... You have a natural personality. And I do, and she does, and he does, and we all do. But most of us left it in the dust. Before the age of five. Yeah, three probably. <laughs> we, we have a natural personality, and it's still there, and it still shows up. And, and that's probably one of the beauties of being with family that we grew up with, is that it shines a bit more there, because they knew us then. Um, hopefully, <laughs> they, hopefully it shines more there. But the, uh, the natural, pure personality that we have, is, it's there. It's waiting for you. But most people who have those, those traumatic negative moments and then cover it up with the, this cut-and-paste personality, they're very far from that natural personality they have as a child. And I'll prove it to you, because have you noticed how tired you get? You ever seen a two-year-old get tired? No way. Have you, have you noticed how you hug in a way that's not... I mean, maybe I'm pouring you a hug like that, but normally your hugs are a little re- reserved. Um, you ever seen a two, you ever hugged a two-year-old? I mean, it's like full, you know, compression. Yeah, the, the, um, when's the last time you laughed like a two-year-old laughs? When's the last time you cried like a two-year-old cries? When's the last time you expressed yourself the way a two-year-old expresses his or herself? So, like, you can see that the, you, that your whole real, the real natural personality of you is, is under major governance right now. It's under check. You got it all in check. Heavily governed and rarely ever expressed and let out of its, you know, of its little uh, hiding place. But it's all there, and it, boy, it comes back in, in like a flood. You know, it comes back so amazingly. So then, how do you differentiate between what parts you need to get rid of and which parts you need to keep? Um, the parts that are that are negative you get rid of and the parts that are positive you keep and the, the fake parts that are positive that's what uh, Rocheli was asking the fake parts that are positive aren't they're yours to use meaning let's say I got good at guitar because you know everyone loves a guitar player so I was like oh so I'll, I'll get good at guitar it's charming you know everyone loves the guitar player with a good voice and, and that was me so should I quit playing guitar now that I know that it was a band-aid? What do you say? No way. You get what I'm saying? Like, well, I should stop playing guitar. Even as a public speaker, you know why I speak well? Because when I was a kid, I thought I was dumb. I wasn't dumb, I was creative. And the school system doesn't set, it's not set up for creatives. It's set up for more structured personality. You know the structure and the creatives? So I'm a creative in a structured education system. 
And so I just figured I must be done. Because they would give us reading lists and books. <laughs> I was like, it would take me, the entire time they allotted to read the whole book, it would take me to get through the first chapter if I wanted to understand it. Because I just, I have to live each line. If I don't live the line of the book, I didn't read the line of the book. I, I, if I haven't completely integrated each sentence into my, who I am, I, I haven't begun reading the book. But then I could never read the book. So I, never, so I never read a book. How could I ever get through a book? Think how long it would take me to get through a book. Especially as a kid. It was impossible, so I just never read. Now, what's going to happen to someone who doesn't read? What's going to happen to their vocabulary? High-level vocabulary or low-level vocabulary? High, high, high Likelihood of being a public speaker or low likelihood? Low likelihood. Except what I do, I notice that smart people have a tremendous vocabulary because the smart people, who I thought were smart based on the education system, which were really structured people, they read and they develop their vocabulary. So you know what I said? I said, you know what? I can't read and I can't be smart, but one thing I could do is develop my vocabulary because I got a good memory. I'll just remember every single difficult word I ever hear. And, and I'm also, I also notice smart people are eloquent speakers. So I'll just be as eloquent as possible. I'll be eloquent with big vocabulary. And today I'm a public speaker and never read a book. I've, I've, I've read like maybe a handful of books. They're all personal growth books. And I, I read them on, in the bathroom. Now as far as my stuff as a, knowing God's will, I eat Torah. That stuff I study. But I, what I learn with somebody, and we, you know, we hash it out together. And we integrate Torah. When you're learning Torah, you're integrating line by line. And, and you know, you don't want to learn Torah intellectually. You want to learn it inter integri in integratively. Integratively. And so Torah worked for me because, like, you're supposed to be what you learn. So that uh, that was cool. Uh, the school stuff, though, where all you were supposed to do is release it onto an exam or into an essay, that didn't work for me. Um, anyway, should I stop public speaking? No. <laughs> I'll keep public speaking, even though I never read it. Um, okay, uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about spirituality, and just one more distinction. We're going to go pretty hot this week, I think, on this topic, and dive into some really deep stuff. But today I just wanted to introduce it and kind of get our egos out of the way, so that maybe we could start to travel together. Anyone going to be here this week at all for learning, or it's just today? Anyone planning on being around? Yeah. Okay, so we're, we'll do quite a journey this week. Stuff that I'm, you're not used to. Those who are regulars aren't used to in this class. Yeah. So just another aspect I wanted to share is a Venn diagram. And this is a Venn diagram that covers very much the word spirit, which you all were discussing. Oops, let's try it like this. And on the right, you have what's called alignment. And on the left, you have connection. I remember before I was talking about how when you got rid of all the ego, your spirit kind of started to glow, and then you started connecting with others because they also have a spirit. Just like you have a soul, I have a soul. And so our souls, we can always connect. Soul with soul has... You know, if you break China, and you know how they like fit together so well when it, you put the pieces back that it, you can almost not use glue for a moment? It'll like stick for a second. So... That's how our souls are with each other. But once you put self-image in the way, it's like you're going to have to break out sandpaper 
to get the two sides to meet so we can glue them back together. Is that clear analogy? So the word spiritual, spirit, is over here, and that's the word connection. And there's total connection with spirit. Uh, whereas the word alignment is aligning the two sides of, you know, when you have two objects, you got to align them. And that's alignment. So Jewish law, which is the 613, the 613 commandments are alignment. And we have a massive, massive amount of Torah that is the Talmud and, you know, Mishnah, the Talmud, the Halakha, is, is how, to, um, how to do all the alignments. Okay? Whereas connection is an extremely personal thing that comes from a soul connection to the source of the soul. Um, you know, Moses asked God to see him, which is a peculiar question, because, you know, like, how did Moses not know you can't see God? Meaning, God says, you can't see me. But how can you be a guy like Moses and not know that to the point where you'd ask the question? Like, why would Moses even ask to see God? Such a strange question. And, by the way, God's answer to him was really powerful. What did he say, huh? No one can see me and live. No man can see me and live. What's that supposed to mean? What it means is the fact that you have a body here is, is only because I'm if you see me. How could there be anything but that? There's only God. Maybe that's a little advanced. Let me explain there's only God real quick. I don't know how to fix it. Just let it go. Can you even post it? Oh, wait, no room. <laughs> um, see you, Holy Brother. Um, let's put it like this. I'm gonna, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you the four-second proof of God, and then you'll know what I mean by you can't see God and live. Um, you guys ever heard the four-second proof of God? Did you know there's an incontrovertible proof of God that takes only four seconds? So just to give you the precursor to it, it's um, that the, um, just to know what nothing makes. What does nothing make? Nothing. Nothing. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Meaning if there was nothing in, in that, uh, there's almost nothing in your bottle. But let's just say there was nothing in your bottle. And we seal it. And we bury it. Bury it for years. When we come back years later, what's going to be in there? Nothing. What does nothing make, everybody? Nothing. Is that clear? Yo, nothing makes nothing, right? Nothing makes nothing. Now, what was there before there was something? Meaning, before there was a world, before creation, what was there? No, before there was something, what was there? What? Before there was something, what was there? Nothing. And that's whether you hold by science, not that there aren't theorists who love to theorize about multiverses and like, but besides those theories, before there was something, whether you go by physics or you go by, by Torah, before there was something there was? No. Okay, so you ready for the four second proof of God? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. She got it. She got it. Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, 
What does nothing make? But now that there's something, it must be the nothing that preceded the something was was God. Now, that's the Rambam, by the way. He's that's his proof from a thousand years ago. Couldn't someone said there was something instead of God? Well, that's something that is God, but it's not made of a thing. There's no physicality, no space, no time, no nothing that any human being would ever call something. Could it be something that we don't know what it is? That's not space and time? <laughs> the answer is, that's exactly what it is. We call it God. We call it God. Why? Because where did this place come from? It came from it. But it's not made of anything. Now, by the way, it's a very non-religious way of expressing God. Meaning even an atheist couldn't argue this. I've had atheists raise their hand and say, Rabbi, you know, that's a God I can believe in. And I always thought God was nothing. And I'm like, well, welcome to Judaism. Now, what did God use to create the world? No, no, I'm saying at the very beginning. What did God use? If all there was was God, what did God use to create the world? Himself. Himself, that's all there was. So what's the world made of? God, very good. Okay. Now Moses says, can I see you? And God says, no one can see me and live. Why? Because if you saw me, you wouldn't exist. Because everything's made of me. Oh, what's up? Oh, you guys will like this point. Yo, what's up, guys? So we were just talking about before there was something, there was nothing. Got that? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes, what does nothing make? If you have nothing, what do you get? Nothing. Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Now, that nothing that precedes creation, where did he get the creation? Did he go to Home Depot? Go to Costco? Where did, where did God go to create the world? He created the, he created the world out of himself. Now, when Moses said, let me see you, God answers him, no one can see me and live because the only reason you exist right now, the only reason you're here right now is because God's, so to speak, pulled himself out just enough so you exist. But he didn't really do that. What he did instead was cover up layer upon layer in parallel universes. There's parallel realms in our universe has parallel, not our physical universe, but the, the metaphysical universe has parallel realms that filter out, filter out, filter out, filter out, and we in here, right here where we are, is the outer crust. This 3D situation you're in right now is the outer crust. And not only that, but you're mostly dead. No offense. You're mostly dead. Give me a sec, because so, we only have a minute. We're, you're mostly dead. Why? Because your soul ha is made of... You don't just have a soul, like a body and a soul. It's not like vodka and, uh, with an with a energy drink. Uh, what do you got? The Red Bull. Where it's a one-to-one. -one. No, your soul to your body has no ratio. Your body's physical and your soul has massive levels upon levels upon levels, all of which are in the world of the dead. The only bit of your soul that touches into this world is an outer membrane. It's like the white on my fingernail. Meaning, meaning, if this is the highest level soul, which is called the Yechida, and then this is the Chaya, those are all in the world of the dead. And this is the 
neshama, also in the world of the dead. And this is the ruach, also in the world of the dead. And this is the nefesh. At the very end of it, where my white of my fingernail is, that's the part that my neurons in my cerebral cortex report to. They report to that. What's up, ladies? You understand? You're already, you're already in the world of souls. So when Moses asked God to see... So when Moses says, and really, I, I got to get the answer to this. Why did Moses? Moses was the highest level Jew around. How? Why did he even ask God to see him? Doesn't Moses realize seeing God means you don't exist? But God answers him, "No man can see me and live, because the only reason you exist is because I'm, I so to speak, pulled myself out of the system. Not that he's not in the system, but he's but he's filtered himself out, so to speak, enough that." You exist in this three-dimensional outer cross. Take that. Take it from Go, that's it. Go take it from there, yeah. Rabbi Glazer says take No, it. from there. Just take it straight from there. Okay. Ain't Adam, you're any is where we're going. So why is it? This is interesting. Rabbi Glazer is trying something new. Seamless. So why is it? Why is... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.